Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to also click the link for my other podcast that covers more recent movies. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, and you can find the link to that at that website, Quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the third of a four-part series, looking at the Jaws films of the 1970s and the 80s. Of course, this is a show mostly about the 1980s, and we're getting into the first of the Jaws films that take place in the 1980s. From 1983, I'm talking about Jaws 3, or you could call it by its theatrical title of Jaws 3D, because it was released in 3D in 1983. It's a PG-rated film that does have some gore, sensuality, and language. The runtime is an hour and 38 minutes. The cast of stars include Dennis Quaid, Bess Armstrong, Louis Gossett Jr., Simon McCorkendale, John Putch, and Leah Thompson. Joe Alves is the director. The screenplay credited to Carl Gottlieb, Richard Matheson, and Michael Caine. Not that Michael Caine, not the one that appears in Jaws the Revenge, this screenwriter's last name is spelled K-A-N-E. We start back in the beginning of 1979. Comedian Chevy Chase, he made a joke to a couple of junior execs at Universal Pictures. He joked that they should combine their two biggest recent successes of 1978 and make a sequel to both of them called Jaws Meets Animal House. Now, while that was initially a joke... Mount and Daniels thought, hey, that actually might be a good idea. So they casually mentioned it to their boss, Universal's president, Ned Tannen. And Ned Tannen thought that was kind of an intriguing idea. So he thought he should pass it along to Jaws producers, Richard Zanuck and David Brown. And they immediately loved it. They thought this was a great idea because they were stuck on what to do next without Roy Scheider wanting to appear in any other Jaws movies and without wanting to regurgitate the same formula over and over. Now, while at lunch with National Lampoon's publisher, he had just started turning into a movie producer, Maddie Simmons, David Brown pitched the idea, Jaws meets Animal House. Simmons' immediate response to this idea was, I hate it. And the reason why he hated it is because he already had a follow-up to Animal House in his mind. It was going to be set six years later. He did not want to screw up his franchise by polluting it with another franchise. Brown explained that the film, this Jaws Meet Animal House idea, didn't really need to tie in directly with the characters or the story from Animal House, or even Jaws for that matter. It just needed to be a Jaws film in the comedic style of National Lampoon. So Simmons, he started riffing. He played along. He thought, you know, what would a Jaws 3 be like in the hands of National Lampoon? He entitled it, on the spot, Jaws 3 People zero, or people nothing, but it's spelled with a numeral zero. Simmons envisioned this kind of meta comedy about this vengeful shark who goes out hunting and killing these movie makers who are trying to make another entry in Jaws. He could have Peter Benchley eaten by a shark in his swimming pool for the opening scene. And Steven Spielberg, he could get different body parts bitten off of him throughout the movie. The real-life studio heads could come in and they could play the heavies and the actors and the writers could be the good guys. And by the end of all of this riffing, this conversation, David Brown, of course, found it all hilarious. Simmons, he actually ended up loving his own idea that he had hated an hour before. And Simon said that he would work out the details from the business side. And they left it at that. 
Flash forward two months later, Universal now publicly announced their next big comedy, Jaws 3, People, Nothing. Simmons would write the initial treatment for this film, and he would also be the producer. Zanuck and Brown would be the executive producers. And National Lampoon's editors, John Hughes, yes, that John Hughes this time, the John Hughes that created all of those great teen comedies of the 1980s, and also Todd Carroll, they would both provide the script. Joe Dante, he would get the nod to direct what promised to be his first studio effort. And they all bounced all of these wacky, zany ideas off the wall. They threw them all in there in the script, including this revelation that the sharks are actually aliens in disguise. I mean, this was a real kitchen sink approach to making a comedy. For their star... Simmons cast comedian Roger Bumpus. Now, if that name sounds familiar to you, you must be a a fan of SpongeBob SquarePants because today he voices Squidward Tentacles on that show. Simmons, at that time, felt that Bumpus, who was pretty much an unknown, he would become the next big star, the biggest star of the 1980s in the world of comedy. He was set to skyrocket. Stephen First would appear as a leading man who had let himself go. They approached Marriott Hartley uh, about a role that she could play as a studio executive, but she turned it down. Now, at a preview screening of Blake Edwards 10 at Universal, Simmons became enamored of Bo Derek in that film, and he approached her after the film and offered her the lead actress role in this Jaws 3 film. And within two days, she came back to him and she agreed she would do it. So he had his leading lady set. A slew of cameo appearances would also be in the film. Mel Brooks, Jonathan Winters, Mickey Rooney, as well as those who were involved in the making of Jaws. They hoped MCA president Sid Scheinberg, his wife Lorraine Gary, and Richard Dreyfuss, and and maybe more if they could get them. Now at this point, it all seemed like this was going to be an absolute can't-miss effort. I mean, this was a film that would be the third in the top franchise at the time, Jaws the second film for National Lampoon right after the phenomenal breakthrough that was Animal House, and this would also be Bo Derrick's next film after becoming an overnight sensation with 10. This was going to be a $100 million earning picture, they all felt. The studio was very excited as well. They had locations scouted, They started reconditioning all of the sharks that were in use from Jaws 2 to appear in this film, and all told, Universal plunked down about 2 or $3 million dollars in the pre-development phase, before even anything started filming. Richard Zanuck felt that the first script that he had read from Hughes and Carroll was absolutely hilarious, but he did question their need to go for R-rated humor. He thought that this should be, like the Jaws films, PG-rated in order to attract the biggest audience. The studio was also less enthused for their own reasons. They thought that the writers were making fun of the very people who made Jaws, much more so than they were actually spoofing the killer shark genre, which is what they thought that this film was going to be about. And after five more passes and trying to tone down this original script to make a PG-rated version while also reducing obvious connections to real-life people that are in the business, it also lost a lot of its original flavor. And it seemed like it was going to be a lousy marriage fraught with a lot of creative differences overall. So Universal unfortunately, nixed it, even after all of their investment. Years later, Maddie Simmons, he had heard that the reason why Universal nixed it was because Steven Spielberg was adamantly opposed to Jaws becoming a spoof, and he felt they canceled it because they didn't want him to leave them in protest. But at the time, Simmons was obviously incensed. He had wasted so much time, about a year and a half of his time, putting it all together 
only to end up with nothing. So he wanted immediately out of his universal contract so he could shop this idea to another studio who would be willing to pay the turnaround costs. And Universal consented on the stipulation that whatever film that Simmons and whatever studio he took it to made, they could not have a shark or any other kind of water creature in it. It had to be absolutely divorced from Jaws. Zanuck and Brown, they also left Universal, not in protest necessarily. They were at the end of their contract. They were now free to move to 20th Century Fox. They told Universal that they were available as consultants if they decided to make another Jaws film in the future. Now, by 1980, overseas theater owners began to demand of Universal that they put out another Jaws movie because they were experienced high audience demand. They were always asked, when is the next Jaws coming out? I keep hearing about it. When is it coming out? And with their theatrical film that they had been working on for so long, Dead in the Water, Universal contemplated making a quickie TV film that they could release in the United States on television, but theatrically in other parts of the world. So, Alan Landsberg Productions, they were the makers of such TV fare as the TV shows That's Incredible and also Give Me a Break and many others. They bought out the rights from Zanuck and Brown to make their Jaws project for TV with Universal buying international distribution rights. Gordon Trueblood, he was known for making um, made-for-TV, nature-run-amuck films for Landsberg. He came up with this initial premise. He contemplated making the next Jaws a disaster movie. It would have the title of Jaws 81. That was kind of like the airport films that had the year after the title of airport. And Trueblood spent several months working out this concept of a shark that swims upstream and ends up in a lake, and it causes a lot of deadly problems for the local fishers and other people who inhabit the lake, and they would have to send in hunters to root the dangerous shark out. Lansberg liked the idea. He met with Mel Stewart and slotted him as the possible director after he had his stint making The White Lions for Landsberg, and also to star, at least one of the main stars, would be Mickey Rooney, who had done Landsberg's award-winning TV film called Bill. But True Blood's script really did not garner Universal's enthusiasm. So Landsberg brought in a bigger gun, veteran novelist and screenwriter Richard Matheson. Matheson, coincidentally, he had worked on the fringes of Jaws. He had worked with Jaws director Steven Spielberg for his early made-for-TV film called Duel, and Jaws 2's director, Jano Schwark, for Somewhere in Time. He did the script based off of his own novel called Bidtime Return. Matheson was not shown, or he really didn't have any direct knowledge of True Blood's script. He didn't even know it existed. He received only Landsberg's story outline of this shark in a lagoon and went with that premise for his own script. The delays, though, in personnel and the changes made did draw the attention of the executives at MCA, which were the parent company of Universal. Although Universal was not producing Jaws 3, they did intend to distribute it, and they did not want a substandard product. So Verna Fields, Universal's vice president and also the editor for the original Jaws, she told Joe Alves, who was the production designer on the first two Jaws films and the second unit director on Jaws 2, she told him to go find out what's going on and see if he could steer things in the right direction. And Alves immediately saw significant problems. Landsberg told him that they did not need mechanical sharks for their film because they could use stock footage from That's Incredible and mix that with new footage using these half-scale human dummies filled with chum that the smaller sharks would eat. They would look bigger, though, because the dummies were smaller. 
Alves knew that this was just never going to fly with audiences. It would probably be absolutely laughable. So he passed on the chance to produce the film, but he did offer to help Matheson scout locations because he wanted them to avoid an expensive and prolonged shoot like the experience with the first two Jaws films. Alves recommended that they use a large tank to shoot aquatic scenes, and that would be less expensive and they could control their environment much more. They visited several aquariums and marine parks for their ideas. And the one thing that really popped out to Alves and Matheson was this immersive underwater exhibit that they saw at Marineland of Florida. It featured this 23-minute, 70-millimeter 3D documentary called Sea Dream, and that was made by Murray Lerner. Now, for a tech head like Alves, this film was a revelation, and the gears started spinning in his mind that they might actually be able to produce the same effect in movie theaters within the context of a Jaws movie. And this film also inspired the aquatic theme park idea because this would be a natural place where they could have control of the shark and the shooting locations, something that made the prior two films run way over schedule and over budget. And they would also be able to use a freshwater tank to avoid the corrosive aspects of the salt water that kept ruining the use of a mechanical shark. So Alves drew up this concept of a shark coming out of the screen at the audience, Jaws 3D. He showed this art concept to Landsberg and then to Sid Scheinberg. They were captivated. After MCA's other head, Lou Wasserman, took a look, Landsberg sent the script to Murray Lerner to see if he would be interested in helping out with the making of the next Jaws movie in 3D as he did for Sea Dream. As they already had an art director assigned to the film, Lerner, he really didn't want any involvement. So Wasserman and Landsberg then urged Joe Alves to take control and direct whatever he had in his mind, not for television, but for theaters in the U.S. This was going to be an event film. Now, with Alves in place as director, Landsberg phoned up producer Rupert Hitzig to work as the line producer. Hitzig wanted no part of it initially. He felt that the Jaws franchise had run its course, and he also mentioned that he had absolutely no knowledge of 3D as a filmmaking process, which is kind of what Landsberg said he wanted for this role, because while Alves would concentrate on the technical aspects, Hitzig could make sure that it stayed on track as a narrative movie. After Hitzig met with Alves and Landsberg, he actually grew excited about the prospects, and he signed on board eagerly. Meanwhile, Universal executives, they deemed that the script by Matheson was full of a lot of problems. Matheson's story did not tie in at all with the first two Jaws films, and Sid Scheinberg insisted that the main character had to be related. It should be Mike Brody, the eldest son of Chief Brody, and they wanted to also somehow bring in Sean Brody into the story as well. Matheson thought that this was absolutely ridiculous because the Brody family was going to experience another shark problem in a completely different part of the country. And even more so, Universal also requested on top of that that they use the same shark from Jaws 2 as the main nemesis, all burnt up but still alive somehow, even though we saw it get electrocuted in Jaws 2. Matheson asserted that audiences would just absolutely laugh at this twist. So Universal, at least wisely, backed off of that idea anyway. On top of this, Landsberg also asked Matheson to write in a role, a big role, specifically for his friend Mickey Rooney as a thank you for his Emmy and Golden Globe winning performance in the TV movie Bill, which also won for Landsberg a Golden Globe for Best TV Film. Matheson wrote in uh, Mickey's part as this clown who entertains the crowd at the water park. 
This was a role that he ended up taking back out, though, because Mickey Rooney soon became unavailable, thankfully, I guess, for Matheson. However, Rooney's co-star in Bill, Dennis Quaid, he was given the lead role of Mike Brody. Quaid later would call Jaws 3 the worst experience of his life. He also claimed that he was sky high on cocaine throughout every scene that he shot. Now, as for the entire cast that he had brought in, Alves, he wanted to train the actors to handle the underwater drama. He didn't want to use stunt people because he planned to have some actual dramatic things happen while they were under the water. So Dennis Quaid was trained to learn to scuba dive, and he was also shown how to ride a jet ski. Armstrong was trained to ride on the backs of whales and communicate with dolphins. And in the case of Leah Thompson, she would learn how to water ski, not only just water ski, but do it in a pyramid formation with with other women standing on each other's shoulders. Leah Thompson was cast here. This was actually her film debut. She was discovered from a Burger King commercial by the casting director, and she beat out the likes of Jennifer Jason Lee, who was hot from Fast Times at Richmond High at the time. Dennis Quaid, by the way, at that time he was married to actress PJ Souls. During the production of Jaws 3, began a romantic relationship with Leah Thompson, and he went through a divorce with PJ Souls, and then he and Thompson became engaged, although they were never married. They finally called it quits in 1987, but Simon McCorkendale, known for some people from the 1980s as the guy who starred in Manimal, he got the role of the shark hunter Fitzroyce after David Warner and Peter Firth turned it down. As for Roy Scheider... Why is he not in this film? Well, he wasn't even asked. He actually stated in an interview sometime later that not even Mephistopheles could have gotten him to do another Jaws film. He went so far as to take the job in Blue Thunder to make sure that he was not going to be available at the time they were scheduled to shoot Jaws 3. He didn't want any part of it, any excuse, was reached for. Now, after Matheson brought in the Brody Boys to his script, Alves and Hitzig, they felt that the revised script still needed some more work. So they brought in Michael Caine, once again, not the actor, the screenwriter, to spruce up the dialogue and to give it more of a comedic edge. But that script still fell short. They wanted the characters to be relatable and their situations to be fun. So they hired once again, coming in to save the day, Carl Gottlieb. He wrote the final scripts for both of the prior Jaws films. They wanted him to bring in levity and those character touches like the first two films had. Because at that time they had already cast the movie, Gottlieb got to know the actors and their personalities and what made them tick, so he was able to use that knowledge to work character touches into the script that they could handle. Now, as far as what the final script that Gottlieb produced, we see in Jaws 3, the sons of Sheriff Brody, they are now in Florida. Elder son Mike, he's completing this two-year construction project for this underwater structure that he's building in the lagoon at SeaWorld that people could walk in. There's going to be a restaurant and everything all under the water, and all of these fish are going to be all around them. Mike's younger brother, Sean, played by John Putch, he's visiting from college. Sean, unlike Mike, he suffers from aquaphobia. He doesn't want to get in the water, and that's brought about from his harrowing near-death experiences that we witnessed from the first two Jaws films. And he has reason to fear here. He doesn't know it, though, at the beginning. A young great white shark enters into the lagoon through the filtration system and upends the pre-opening day adjustments. And when one of the crew ends up getting viciously chomped, it appears that this shark might actually not have done it a larger shark would have had to have been responsible. And they shudder to realize that the shark's mother, a massive 35-foot-long great white, has also passed into the park, hungry for the taste 
of human flesh and also for the taste of underwater sea world structures. A lot more to the story than that, but like I say for these Jaws sequels, you don't go into these sequels looking for more than just a basic premise. Now, Alves brought in some pretty unique ideas for how to shoot the shark, including this point of view angle, this shot from inside the shark's mouth. You're inside the shark looking out of its mouth. He originally developed that idea for a scene that he wanted to use in the original Jaws, where the shark attacks Matt Hooper in a cage, but Spielberg felt at that time that it distracted instead of enhanced the horror for that scene. They built this 1.6 million gallon tank at the SeaWorld Marine Life theme park in Orlando, Florida. And because Orlando is 60 miles inland, obviously a shark is not going to be able to get in there. But, you know, through movie magic, it somehow ends up being on the shore. So they had some additional shooting to take place at the SeaWorld Park in San Diego, as well as the Florida Keys to use for some of the water skiing scenes. Now, though the unpredictability of the weather and the ocean traffic were no longer issues, as well as the salt water to the sharks... The shoot would be far from easy for Alves because of the 3D process, the AeroVision 3D process, this kind of this new state-of-the-art, at least at that time, a split-lens system that allowed them to use one camera instead of two, it was not quite ready to go. So they brought in Chris Condon, who was in charge of StereoVision. He would come in for the first couple of weeks of shooting using the StereoVision technique, but most of those results ended up being unusable in Alf's mind. So the Aeroflex cameras, once they did arrive, they had to reshoot a lot of those scenes, but they were also very challenging to use. They required extensive pre-planning for each specific shot. And at $15 million budget, this would end up becoming the most expensive 3D film made to that date. Now, unlike the prior films, there were not any delays due to a malfunctioning mechanical shark in Jaws 3. They made the sharks using the chassis from one of the sharks from Jaws 2, and this new shark, which was designed by Roy Arbogast, it had more flexibility in its movement and its skin, and it had articulation in its gills, and its eyes would roll back as a real shark does when it bites into something. And there was also another shark used to represent its fin from above the water and also for its tail section. So they really had everything ready to go. That went like clockwork, one of the few things, really. Now, once it was all said and done, once they had completed the film, Jaws 3D rolled out without any advanced screenings for the public or for critics. They wanted to avoid bad press because they knew that they had a film that probably was going to be derided. So the 3D gimmick, it did interest audiences enough, and it set a box office record on its opening weekend for the biggest film made by Universal to date. It actually lingered around long enough, despite bad word of mouth, to generate a profit. It raked in about three times its shooting budget at about $45 million, and maybe five times if you factor in the additional $32 million it took in overseas. But critics were far from kind when they did see the final film. They proclaimed Jaws 3D as one of the worst films of 1983. It was nominated for five Golden Raspberry Awards, those Razzies, Worst Picture, Worst Screenplay, Joe Alves for Worst Director, Lou Gossett Jr. for Worst Supporting Actor. That was actually the same year he had won an Oscar for An Officer and a Gentleman, so (laughs) pretty mixed results there. And the two dolphins that are in this film also got nominated, Cindy and Sandy, for Worst New Stars. So pretty much a lambasted film by the critics, even if it turned a modest profit. I think what made the original Jaws effective was the vision and the talent of Steven Spielberg. Spielberg, he utilized a lot of his great skills, his eye for cinema, and he created one of the best horror adventure films of all time. Now, Jaws 2, 
it was a considerable step down. And that's mostly because director Jeno Swark, he didn't really have a lot of time. Maybe he didn't have the talent either to construct anything beyond a workable film. Now with Jaws 3, Joe Alves, this was his first actual directorial effort, even though he was second unit director on the previous film. The lack of experience really does show here. He does lack the experience to build adequate tension or terror or even an engaging presentation. The shark attacks themselves lack suspense. They're replaced here by cheap attempts at shock and gore. And Joe Alves just did not understand that the terror of a shark attack comes from what you cannot see, much more so than what you can, because the shark's face is featured quite prominently whenever it makes an appearance, and the scares are diminished by the familiarity. Not only would this be Alves' debut as a director, it would also be his final credit in that regard. He was a phenomenal production designer, but as a director, he just could not cut it, as it shows here in Jaws 3. And I think what makes Jaws 3 so unpalatable for so many people is that it really does lack a sense of style. Scenes here lumber, they don't have a lot of visual panache, there aren't a lot of moments of general interest in what's going on. It merely establishes a lot of thinly defined characters and their premise. All of this is interspersed by random acts of mayhem that we don't really care that much about because all of these characters are very cartoonish. The only unique visual elements come from the odd presentation here, and that's because Jaws 3 was a 3D movie when it was released in theaters, so you know you have a lot of moments when things shoot at or float by the camera unnaturally. These things might seem momentarily cool if you were watching that with 3D glasses on in the movie theater, but if you're watching it today, you're probably watching it as a 2D movie, and that will lead to a lot of awkward, weird moments that'll take you out of the story. The 3D process also diminished the picture quality of the film because Jaws 3, when you watch it in 2D, it's obviously not as eye-popping as the other Jaws efforts. It's really marred by this murky presentation. It's very out of focus on the edges, excessive grain, dim lighting, unnatural colors. I mean, this is really an ugly and unappealing movie to watch in many ways. So even from an aesthetic standpoint, it falls short. Even the sound components of the film are pretty substandard. Gone is the classic John Williams score. I mean, it's used a little bit here and there, but it's replaced mostly by this unmemorable one by TV composer Alan Parker. This was his first ever film work. None of the music really evokes a sense of terror or dread or suspense in the slightest. And compounding this, the sound effects are just as out of place. They've now added this low-pitched snarl to the shark that would seem more appropriate for a T-Rex or a Brontosaurus instead of this fish, because sharks have no vocal cords, so they shouldn't make sounds like this, but they thought it would be more menacing, I guess. Campy performances, very cheesy special effects, awful dialogue, and they all contribute to making Jaws 3 a very dismal experience for just about everyone. Except for bad movie lovers, I guess. There are quite a few of you who listen to my show that love some of these stinkers, and I can kind of understand why. I actually have watched Jaws 3 probably about seven or eight times in my life. I mean, it's a bad movie, and I really do think it sucks, but at the same time, there's something kind of enjoyable about watching it on that level. It's pretty much hard to believe that a sequel this downright abominable, though, did not kill the franchise here because it would actually be followed by a movie that many people think is actually worse than Jaws 3, Jaws the Revenge, which I will be talking about on the next episode from 1987. So check out Jaws the Revenge if you are 
a glutton for punishment. But for what it's worth, Jaws 3, and whether I like Jaws 3 or Jaws the Revenge more, I will get into on the next episode. But it's going to be pretty big competition for worst film because I will give Jaws 3 one star out of four. One star means I do think that this is an abominable film. Not one I would recommend to anybody, but the most masochistic, as I mentioned, of bad movie lovers. If you're in that camp, I guess you probably do enjoy this and you will watch this over and over. If you're a completist, if you're a Jaws completist, you probably have learned to tolerate a lot of the badness for the sake of watching more Jaws. But, you know, if I were to give this to somebody who had never heard of this franchise, even though that seems hard to believe, they would probably come away thinking, wow. This is just one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. And that's why I cannot give Jaws 3 or Jaws 3D more than one star, at least in 2D. In 3D, in the theater, maybe it might pack more appeal as that event movie that they were going for. If you have your own thoughts on Jaws 3, and I know many of you do, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net. Let me know why you think that one star is just too low for this movie. This is actually a good movie, or at least one that deserves more than one star. You can find my email address or links to my social media at my website, quipster.net. Next week, as I mentioned, Jaws to Revenge from 1987, Michael Caine, Lorraine Gary returning from the first two Jaws films. So it definitely does tie in much more with the first two Jaws films, even though a lot of people still <laughs> disassociate it. Nonetheless, for reasons I will get into on next week's episode. So thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. 